Coming up on Tech Nation, former CNN journalist Ravi Agrawal about how the smartphone is transforming India and how the smartphone itself has transformed to serve over a billion people who speak many languages and possess many different levels of literacy. Then we'll hear from Jamie Metzel. Dr. Metzel is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and has worked in international relations on many levels. He looks across all life, past, present, and tomorrow, with hacking Darwin, genetic engineering, and the future of humanity. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Things have not been going well lately for the golden children of the Internet. We all thought that the Googles, Facebooks, Amazons, Twitters, YouTubes, Instagram, and everybody else of their ilk were untouchable. Their founders, popular heroes, their fortunes unprecedented, their future secure. But as it happens in every human life, Time is the great equalizer, even for golden children. Stick around long enough and life gets challenging. Facebook is digging hard to weed out anything associated with Russia's insidious Internet Research Agency, itself a digital weed, while acknowledging that the information of some 80 million Americans has found its way to Cambridge Analytica. The president of the United States can't leave his Twitter account alone, while Twitter's founders and its creators have to know that at some level they're enabling the spread of dubious information to people who take it as truth. And even Amazon, that American of all American Internet plays, is being attacked as well on American. The president's Twitter stream accuses Amazon of bringing down the venerable U.S. post office, succeeding on the taxpayer's dollar and taking away American jobs. So, question, are the nearly half of American households with Amazon Prime accounts also enablers? Many believe the root cause of this accusation is that Amazon's founder, the modest Jeff Bezos, had the temerity and the money to personally purchase the Washington Post high on the president's fake news list. But an unfair attack is an attack just the same. Nevertheless, nothing compares with Google's YouTube coming face-to-face with a disgruntled video provider-turned-shooter at its headquarters in San Bruno. That would be IRT to you, meaning in real life. At this writing, the YouTube shooter wounded three employees before taking her own life and scaring every single one of the 1,700 people who work there right down to their bones. Most of them are young, thrilled to be a part of this leading-edge social media play and excited to be changing the world. That is, up until April 3rd, 2018. You could see it on their faces as they stood outside the buildings, consoling each other, gripping their smartphones, 
reaching out for contact or bits of information. And while you might expect video of YouTubers running from the buildings en masse, the actual videos show them being marched single file, their hands behind their heads as if they're prisoners, each of them body searched before being moved along. It was not unlike those high school students in Parkland, with police directing them to place their backpacks on an ever-mounting pile as they walked by. But Parkland taught us something. Any of these presumed YouTube staffers could be the shooter, for at Parkland, the shooter blended in with the frightened students and simply walked away. It was the look on the faces of the YouTube staffers that has stuck with me. Bewilderment, pain, and more. Somehow, a promise had been broken. But what promise? That safety and protection is guaranteed when you have a lofty mission? I remember Steve Jobs voicing his popular mantra, he and we were going to change the world. No one thought that their personal efforts would be unfairly criticized or elicit such negative reactions that someone would show up with a gun and that employees would be in peril just going to work. Perhaps the most important of all the lessons here is that, yes, we can build technology that changes the world, but we can't change humans. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with former CNN international journalist Ravi Agrawal about India Connected, how the smartphone is transforming the world's largest democracy. And I'll speak with Jamie Metzel, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, about hacking Darwin, genetic engineering, and the future of humanity. You might know Ravi Agrawal from his many years as a CNN journalist on three continents. He's now back in the U.S. and managing editor of Foreign Policy. Today we'll talk about his book, India Connected. I commented to him that we always hear one number when it comes to India. 1.3 billion people. It really is. And the number encompasses so many different things. And there's so many numbers hidden within that number as well. The 1.3 billion can be broken up into the 200 million Indians who speak English. It can be broken up into the 300 million Indians who are completely illiterate and don't read or write at all. You know, so the numbers divide India into haves and have-nots. And there's so much more to it. India is such a rich but also divided country along the lines of language and culture and the states and, and the cuisines and all of those things. So really, uh, India is a numbers game. Uh, there's a joke that 
you know, whatever you say about India is true and it is also false because <laughs> somewhere around the country uh, there will be someone to prove either side of what you're saying. Well, I once spent a month in India, and I came away saying that whatever you think you understand about India, when you leave, you understand even less. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's like, oh, this is a lot more complicated than I, I thought about that. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, I feel that way having lived there for, you know, 17, 18 years. <laughs> Good. Good. Now, another way to hold this in our hands, uh, sitting here in the United States, although we're we're worldwide, people listen to us all over the world, but uh, sort of focusing on the United States, by landmass, considering the two respective countries, how big they are, the United States is three times bigger than India. So we've got four times the population in a third the size. Yeah, I mean, so by your math there, India would have a population density that is 12 times that of the United States. And you can see that if you land at any Indian airport, you will see uh, the population density just hits you in the face everywhere, wherever you go, in cities, but also in smaller uh, towns uh, just across the country. And really, in many ways, the population density has so much to do with um, the way in which India exists and how chaotic it can be and how difficult it is to change things, how hard it is to build infrastructure around things that have already been built and uh, around civilizations and people and things that people have c constructed, slums or homes. Um, and unlike China, you can't undo any of those things. So, you know, as you point out, India's size, India's age, India's population density, it, the sheer numbers involved... So everything that you imagine is difficult anywhere in the world is even more difficult in India because of all of those reasons. Now, there are 22 major languages with 750 dialects. So you can't like just drive across the country, expect everybody to speak the same language. You speak Hindi, Urdu, Bengali, and some Marwari. I probably mispronounced that, and English. What percent of the people of India can you carry on a direct conversation with? Wow. Well, um, with Hindi and Urdu, uh, you probably have much of the northern, northeastern belt of the country covered. And I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but you're looking at at least four or 500 million Indians right there. Bengali speakers would likely be another 40, 50, 60 million. So, and then the Marwari speakers, very few, because that's mostly a dialect for Marwaris who live in Rajasthan mostly. And not coincidentally, uh, many of my characters are in the state of Rajasthan. Um, many of the others are in the Hindi belt, and, uh, and some are in Calcutta, in Bengal. And it was very important to me as I was writing this book that I was able to speak to my characters and the people I was learning from in the source and the language that they were most comfortable in because I wanted them to open up. I wanted them to be able to tell me every single thing that they were feeling and thinking about how technology was transforming India. So I managed to cover, um, you know, maybe about half of the country in terms of languages that people speak or are comfortable in. And of course, if you add English into the mix, that's another 200 million odd um, but I, I try to stay away from the English speakers uh, in this book because if you speak English in India, the chances are that you are likely quite privileged. You likely live in the city. 
you likely uh, have had a good education. And um, for all of those reasons, you are less likely to be uh, the typical Indian whose life is going to be transformed by the smartphone tech revolution that's coming India's way. Now, one thing we have to really understand is that when we use our smartphones, we actually are not just touching the touch screen and swiping left and right and doing all of that. We're also doing a lot of reading. How is the smartphone going to be used by all of these non-English speakers? So, you know, until smartphones came around, it was very hard for most non-English speakers to really access the internet uh, in a normal, natural way because the internet itself obviously has always been very English-driven. That's beginning to change, has been changing over the last uh, decade or so. But for a country like India where, you know, the internet began as an English thing and it began on, you know, PCs and dial-up connections, but mostly for rich Indians in the big cities, all of whom were English speakers. And so it's only with smartphones that had uh, multilingual software, um, which allowed Hindi and Tamil and Telugu and Bengali and Malayali speakers to then be able to engage with the text they were seeing on the screen, and then also be able to live translate, uh, you know, from Google and other search engines, pages that are in English into their languages. So that has really only just happened in the last few years, thanks to the work of Google, thanks to the work of many others as well, and, and the expanding internet. But the layer that is, I think, the most amazing part of this whole story is the nearly 300 million Indians who do not read or write any language at all. So for them, the internet was never going to be something that they could have used in any form because they can't read or write any language, of course. And now they are able to speak to the internet. And we know this through Alexa and Google Home and and Siri and all of that stuff in the West. But, you know, in a place like India, where uh, none of those technologies have really taken off in a mass way yet, you know, if you're a a rural, um, illiterate Indian who gets their hands on a phone for the first time, you are able to press OK Google and then speak to the phone in Hindi. So you could say something like the words Mujhe Taj Mahal Dikhao, which means in English, show me the Taj Mahal. And the phone, Google, will understand the Hindi, will do its search, and then show you a range of uh, search options again in Hindi. Now, of course, you can't read that Hindi because you're illiterate, but you can click on a video or an image and look at the Taj Mahal, either still images or view, or moving images. And that truly is, is something that is like magic for people who are illiterate. And I, I actually begin the book with one of those characters who's showing other rural illiterate women the internet for the first time. They're all... Uh, you know, couldn't have dreamed of ever using any form of technology or computing power. And here they are speaking to a phone in Hindi, and it shows them videos in return. And the word they all used to describe what they had just experienced was magic. They kept saying, this is like magic. Now, who qualifies as illiterate in this profile? So according to India's last nationwide count, uh, which was in 2011, uh, they call it a census there, 273 million Indians over the age of seven were considered illiterate. 
That number has likely decreased a little bit since then, we think, but we won't know for sure until the next census, which is in 2021. But even the, the classification for what who is illiterate is a broad, sometimes generous definition because, uh, you know, anecdotally, uh, it's known that people who can even just sign their name on a piece of paper are, are considered literate when in reality they probably won't be able to read much else or write much else. So, uh, you know, uh, in shorthand, we often just say about 300 million Indians are illiterate, uh, which is a, a shocking number, uh, as you can imagine. I mean, that is the size of the entire population of the United States. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Ravi Agrawal. You may know him from his many years as a CNN journalist on three continents. He's now back in the U.S., the managing editor of Foreign Policy. And he's written a book, India Connected, How the Smartphone is Transforming the World's Largest Economy. Well, it was about five years ago that the U.S., primarily English-speaking and largely literate, hit 50% adults with smartphones. And today we're pretty saturated, just short of about 80%. In that time frame, what was it like in India? The Internet population in India has just completely exploded in the last five years. So, uh, you know, in the year 2010, there were only 100 million Indians who were on the Internet. And then that jumped to 300 million around about 2015. And today in 2018, it's well over 500 million. So you see how those numbers are just jumping quickly. And every second, three Indians are discovering the Internet in some form. And the reason why they're discovering the Internet now is because they are discovering it on cheap smartphones. They are not discovering it on PCs. In fact, most Indians will never use a PC in their life. Let me take you back to the year 1999. Back then, only 2% of Indians had personal computers. A smaller percentage of Indians had uh, telephone landlines. And that's why the number of Indians online in those days was very small. It was 2% of the population, so about 20 million Indians. If we would have not had cellular technology, then even today, the number of Indians on the internet would have been quite small because that number would have been linked to the number of Indians with personal computers and telephone landlines, which is still very small. Cheap smartphones has completely changed the game in India. And when I say cheap smartphones, I mean smartphones that cost somewhere between 50 and 200 US dollars in India. And these are phones that increasingly the middle classes are able to afford and use. And for most of these Indians, this phone is a gateway to the internet. That's why so many of them are getting online. More than that, it is also for many of them their first camera. It is their first uh, alarm clock. It is their first TV. It is their first video device. It is their first Walkman and MP3 player and so much more. All of it in one small device that is getting them online, getting them into the world of internet commerce, of dating, of education, of so much more, good and bad. And that's why uh, the smartphone is as transformative as it is for India. Are those smartphones manufactured in India? Some of them are. The biggest player in India right now is Xiaomi, which is a Chinese manufacturer. 
th- that company controls, I think, uh, the biggest chunk of the of smartphone sales in India. And number two currently is Samsung, which, as you know, is a South Korean company. Indian companies uh, sort of are are in the top ten, the likes of Micromax, and there's a newer company called Reliance Geo, which sells uh, what is called in India uh, sort of feature phones. They allow you to get on the internet. You can use WhatsApp and a few other things, but they may not have all the other things that high-end smartphones have. Uh, so they won't have very good cameras, for example. But those phones are very cheap. The Geo phone uh, retails for about twenty-three dollars. That's how much you can lease it for, um, but you're pretty much getting to buy it, and and those are the big players. And I should also add that Apple is is nowhere in this picture because the Indian smartphone market is sort of geared mostly towards Android users, and so Apple is uh, controls only one to two percent of the Indian market. Its phones are just too expensive for Indians. Um, you know, a new Apple phone in America probably sells for about a thousand uh, or eleven hundred dollars. In India, it's more because of import duties. And just to compare that, the median income in India is less than two thousand dollars. So the amount that Indians can spend on a phone is is quite small. This year, we're just buying a phone, nothing else. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> exactly. Like, okay, <laughs> I understand that. I understand that. Um, I keep thinking uh, throughout here, although we focus a little on the illiterate and we focus a little on the very wealthy, that great mass of of those who are literate, those who are relatively young, they've got their life in front of them. What do they see? This must change their perspective on what's possible. It really does. I mean, this is going to be the Indian dream. It is going to be, you know, the thing through which young Indians envision their future. And, uh, you know, it, it's going to be the thing that defines uh, the young Indian generation. And, and the average age in India is about 27 years. So you can imagine, you know, you do the math again, and you've got about 670 million young, very young Indians who you know, are growing up native to digital smartphones. And for them, this really is uh, a transformative tool that allows them to dream in ways that wouldn't have been possible for an earlier generation. And the analogy that I like to use is is the car and what the car did to America in the 20th century. And, you know, if you think about it, cars obviously led to the creation of roads and highways and the interstate system. And that created jobs, and because of that, America ended up building suburbia and the picket-fenced home and hours drive away from the city. And then all of that led to a dramatic transformation of retail and consumption, and Americans produced the mega mall and the supermarket, the factory outlet, the multiplex. And with that, there were cultural things, the long weekend, the road trip, the chase, the race. The car was enshrined in Hollywood on TV. And in so many ways, the car embodied the American dream for a generation of Americans. And I like to think that the smartphone will end up embodying the Indian dream for a generation of young Indians. It is going to be the tool through which they may get better educations, they may uh, look for jobs, they may be able to experiment with dating in a way that uh, would be very difficult in a society that still uh, strongly believes in arranged marriages. It allows them to discover pornography, to discover all kinds of things on the internet that would have been cut off for them 
Um, and again, as I've said, it is their first TV. It is their first private property, their first uh, music streaming device. It is a tool through which they are having some very big dreams. And for better or worse, uh, it's here to stay. It is going to define uh, the biggest uh, generation uh, in Indian history. Well, wherever you are, if you have access to any kind of digital information, you can suffer from the impact of fake news. And it's true here as well. That's true. And it's going to be uh, very true in India. It is already, but more so in the coming years, I suspect. And you know, it's it's one of those things where, um, uh, you know, India may be hit by it uh, more than the West has. And the reason why I say this is that Indians uh, are quite susceptible to fake news, uh, it has been shown in the last couple of years. And if you think about it, it, it shouldn't surprise us. You know, I mean, when um, the rest of the world discovered uh, Internet and email in the late 1990s, there was chain mail and, you know, you'd get a chain mail and it would say, if you don't forward this to 10 people, you'll be unlucky in love and you panic and you forward it to 10 people. And then a friend says, hey, that was silly. And then you don't do it, but you learn from your mistakes. And, you know, Americans especially have evolved with the Internet from the 1990s through now. And so I, I, I see the West, I see Americans as, as being more discerning, uh, better educated, um, better able to deal with fake news than people in places like India where, you know, they are discovering the Internet uh, just now in, in one go, hundreds of millions of people in one go. And, you know, the Indian version of the Internet isn't always uh, a website. It is uh, things that are sent to you on uh, the messaging app WhatsApp, which runs on people's phone numbers. So instead of email addresses, you have phone numbers and you send it to people on a contact list. And so inherently you trust WhatsApp more because it's coming from someone who has your mobile number. And, um, you know, you're sent information that could be untrue and then you pass it on and it grows exponentially. And there are many examples of this in the last couple of years that have fueled Hindu-Muslim violence that have led to lynchings that fake news that has led to, uh, you know, people voting a certain way, uh, just as we've seen here, perhaps in the United States. So the the potential impacts are, are simply immense in India. And I think it's really going to take uh, real courage and education for India to deal with this problem. Um, and perhaps they'll have to deal with it in the same way, again, to use the car analogy, the same way in which the state has attacked drinking and driving or driving and not wearing a seatbelt. And just as you had uh, commercials telling you and educating people what to do, I think we need the same thing with smartphones to train people how to live their digital lives. Well, certainly a culture that is embraced for many, many generations, uh, arranged marriages, has a far larger definition of women and their place within a family, within a culture. Where do women stand with this new smartphone revolution? Well, to begin with, women are underrepresented on the Indian Internet. So uh, around about, uh, of the Indian Internet population, only about 30, 35% of users are women. In villages, it's even worse. In the rural population, only 10% of Internet users are women. So given those ratios to begin with everything is skewed and that is beginning to change and i think smartphones will 
allow more women to get online eventually, um, uh, you know, correcting this this great imbalance. Um, but, you know, the, the, the arranged marriage system in India is uh, controlled by by families, is controlled by family friends as well. And, um, you know, uh, there was a survey a few years ago that showed that only 5% of Indian women actually pick their own husbands. I've been speaking with Ravi Agrawal, the author of India Connected, How the Smartphone is Transforming the World's Largest Economy. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Jamie Metzel, the author of Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering, and the Future of Humanity. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Ravi Agrawal, the author of India Connected, How the Smartphone is Transforming the World's Largest Democracy. The arranged marriage system in India is uh, controlled by by families, is controlled by family friends as well. And, um, you know, uh, there was a survey a few years ago that showed that only 5% of Indian women actually pick their own husbands. Uh, 22% had their choices, uh, made their choices along with their parents and other relatives. And about three-fourths had their spouses picked for them with no active say. So uh, that's the arranged marriage system for you right there. And, you know, given all of that, the smartphone is one of those things that will begin to introduce choice. It will begin to introduce uh, dating apps that will allow women to test the waters. They don't actually have to go through with dating or marrying someone that they find on these apps, but it allows them the freedom to to look, the freedom to explore, the freedom to chat and text um, with people that they meet uh, on these apps. And that in and of itself is going to be uh, a big thing, I think, for young Indians so that they can 
you know, begin to take steps towards freedom. And, you know, the India I grew up with, uh, grew up in, uh, you know, it was very clear to me growing up in India, in Calcutta in, in the 90s and early 2000s, that um, boys could get away with so much more than girls could. And I think because the smartphone is such a private device, it's small, you can hold it in front of you, people can't see what you're doing on it. It's going to allow women to have freedoms that they didn't have or couldn't have in India before. Or at least that's what the promise is. Of course, there are many, many ways in which all of this can be misused. Culture shattering. <laughs> it is, indeed. It really is. <laughs> With no plan for where it's going to go. It's just going to shatter. <laughs> so time to watch this space. Time to watch this space. Um, let's also talk about the caste system, what it was, what it is today, and, and how the Internet could affect that. So... You know the caste system has been formally abolished. You'll 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 read that in in civics books and history books. But in reality, caste is broadcast, literally broadcast in people's surnames. So, you know, if you know someone's surname, you likely are able to place what caste they are from, uh, and it still plays a very big role in in Indian life. Uh, it, there is a the legacy of inequality. Uh, between castes, uh, which lives to this day in, in people's education, in people's access to the internet, access to computing, uh, in how wealthy they are or not. Um, and, and that's just the legacy of it. But if you factor in the fact that even today, uh, it does impact who you get to marry, it does impact, uh, at least in the arranged marriage system, it does impact so many other things in terms of you know where you live and and what kinds of jobs you can you can be eligible for um in in an unsaid way often which is which is you know deeply ingrained in the indian psyche uh these are all things that make life deeply unequal in india and i don't know if the phone is necessarily going to change all of these things because in some cases the phone could you know, it could it could entrench things that are already in place. And so, you know, on dating apps, for example, on the one hand, um, young Indian boys and girls, men and women, they have more choice. They can choose from, from a wider range of castes and communities, but they can also specifically search for certain types of castes and communities and income levels and all of that stuff. So, so on the one hand, uh, smartphones will allow for, you know, to shatter all of these different differences in, in India, but they could also entrench them in that it allows people to search specifically within certain things. It's one thing to have an arranged marriage, but it's well known wherever you are, if you marry someone that your family doesn't approve of. <laughs> There's great great deal of suffering that goes on on all sides and uh, and that's right behind the well we didn't arrange this marriage I mean there is we've got experience with this just as humans and and that goes for every single one of these barriers if you will that the smartphone in its applications could break down it really could it really could and at the very least it's going to offer choice and you know i when i was writing this book and speaking to so many characters across the country people i would meet uh especially people who were using these new dating apps um i would often ask them questions about how they're dating and what they expected to get out of it and in some cases in fact the, the main sort of uh, characters i profiled uh 
in a chapter I have dedicated to love and marriage and dating, um, things don't really work out for them because the um, their parents, so they, uh, you know, a, a young man and a young woman, they're from different states. They end up meeting uh, on a dating app, uh, through a dating app, and then they end up getting married, but they don't tell their parents that they met on a dating app. And that that small white lie ends up sort of restricting them in many ways. And and then for, for a variety of reasons, the parents aren't happy with the pairing and that ends up impacting how the marriage plays out. And without giving too much more away, things don't always work out. But I, I was very careful to not impose judgment on, on the end result because I think... You know, by and large, everyone I spoke to would rather have the choice than not. And I think that's a really big thing, especially in a place like India, where um, the choice itself has been denied to so many for so long uh, across so many different things that when, you know, along comes a device that allows you to exercise some form of choice or dip your feet in the water, um, who are we to stop it? You know, it's a good thing in and of itself. And it's sort of, it's it's churning a society that really needs churning. Now, you also write about trust, societal trust. And, uh, and that plays out in many ways. I was very fascinated with the fact that 70% of Uber rides are in cash. Now, of course, here, Uber, Lyft, we love the fact we never have to touch anything. We get in the car. We get out of the car. There's no reason to talk to anybody, you know. And it's like, what do you mean it's in cash? (laughs) That's true. Um, So when Uber moved to India, um, I think it was around about 2013, 2014, um, you know, its big sell, just as it was in the West, was that, you know, here you could uh, order a car on a phone and it would come to you and you jump in and you don't have to haggle, you don't have to mess around with cash, you, you know, it drops you off and you're done. Great. Except the model didn't quite work as planned in India. And an Indian competitor of Uber, it's called Ola, Ola decided to introduce cash payments for exactly the same service. So you would order it on a phone, the car would come to you, it would drop you off, but before you get off, you you settle the bill in cash. And that ended up becoming so popular that Uber ended up offering the same feature as well. Not only that, uh, Flipkart, India, uh, Amazon's big competitor in India, has long offered cash on delivery services. So you can buy a book online, someone will deliver it to your doorstep, and you pay that person in cash. Why is this the case? Um, Well, the reason why is that Indians just don't seem to trust credit cards. They don't seem to trust the banking system in the same way that people do in the West. They think that they will get cheated or that the card will, you know, be it'll end up defrauding them in some way or there will be cyber theft of some sort. Uh, There's all of that and also the fact that Indians, um, you know, love to evade taxes, of course, and so they may just have a lot of cash lying around that they'd like to get rid of. So many reasons why cash is just a much better um, way for Indians to pay. Now, all of that might begin to change at some time, but but, um, the reason why I describe India as a low-trust society is that 
you, you know, the use of cash is just one part of, of why India is a low-trust society. And, you know, Frank Fukuyama, who had a great book called Trust, divided the world into high-trust and low-trust societies. And a high-trust society, for example, was Germany or Japan, where you have large conglomerates, businesses that have very clean supply chains, and everything works. Trains show up on time. People show up for meetings on time. Systems just work, and and you have low trust societies like southern Italy or Taiwan, uh, and this was written in uh, you know a long time ago, obviously. So and this may have changed, especially with Taiwan. But you know, a low trust society is generally one where things don't seem to work. Businesses are usually much smaller, family run, low trust. You tend to hire within communities and castes and things like that. So India is a classic example of a low trust society where. People rarely show up for time on show up on time for meetings, where you expect things to go wrong. You expect your train to not show up, and so you you end up tailoring your behavior in ways that you may not even consciously recognize. But because of your mistrust in the system and in people around you, you act in certain ways, and. That's being seen in the way India's digital shift is taking place because people are still clinging on to the old ways, to cash, to things that they inherently trust, and at some at some stage that is going to change. And what that will mean is Indians will entirely leapfrog, uh, to use the buzzword, will leapfrog uh, various other Western systems. So it's likely that they will leapfrog credit cards for one. Well, democracy is in your subtitle. Will the smartphone change that as well? I don't think so. I think India is the largest democracy in the world. Um, it is going to vote next year in what will be the biggest election in the history of the world. Um, it, it is. It's a. It, India generally tends to have free and fair elections. Uh, I don't think the smartphone is going to change that in any way. But what it will do is it will connect people better. It will allow them to know more. It will allow them to fact check more. And that's on the plus side of the ledger. But on the minus side of the ledger, um, it will also lead to more fake news. It will lead to um, political parties and companies being able to geotag and geotarget uh, particular constituents. Uh, and therefore allow allow them to um, you know serve up ads to uh, you know specific communities in ways that could harm uh, democracy so uh, there's there's a fair bit on the plus and minus side of the ledger but that is the same in any economy in the world i think so i don't expect the smartphone to really substantially change the nature of democracy in india which by and large has been free and fair since 1947 well, I did declare earlier that in my trip to India, I came out understanding less than when I came. Fortunately for your book, I now understand more than when I started to read it. So <laughs> that is the extent of my endorsement. <laughs> I don't understand less. I understand more. So I, I can't tell you how pleased I am about that, Robbie. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I could uh, contribute a little bit to that. <laughs> Robbie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, please don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you on again. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to chat with you. My guest today is Ravi Agrawal. The book is India Connected, How the Smartphone is Transforming the World's Largest Democracy. It's published by Oxford University Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation.
Jamie Metzel is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and you may know Dr. Metzel from his work in international relations or from his books, both fiction and nonfiction. I was aware of his upcoming book, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity, when I actually encountered him in person and was able to get him to sit down for an interview. I have to tell people that this book is about to be published. So when you're hearing this for the first time in broadcast, you could pre-order it, but don't expect to run down to the bookstore right away and get it. It's going to take a few months. I think April's the April, official. April 2019. I have to tell you, you know, I had the galley. They send us all the pre yep. pre stuff, and I had you in person and I made you do this. So it's a lay. I wrote the book because I love this subject. I'm speak, I speak with you every year at the Existential Medicine Conference because we both love this subject. And it's the most exciting thing. I mean, who could, what could be more exciting than the, the future of us? Who doesn't have, have DNA? Everyone. I mean, we all have DNA. We've all, every single person here is the direct descendant of four, almost four billion years of different organisms that have begat, 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 dot, 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 and they arrived at us. And we aren't the end of this chain. We are just one stop along the way. And so where we are going, who knows, but we're starting to get some clues. You're talking generation on generation, totally combined genes again and again and again. You know, it's people think when you talk about it, well, who are your ancestors? And people think, oh, you know, grandma Ethel or whatever, or some people can go back you know, a hundred years. I have a friend who can go back a thousand years and it's, it's incredible, but people don't think that geez, my direct ancestor was a single cell organism created at a thermal vent on the bottom of the ocean, 3.8 billion years ago. And that single cell organism morphed for billions of years into different bacteria and then that, through random mutation and natural selection, morphed into these slightly more complex organisms, and then into fish. And then some of the fish climbed out of the oceans and became mammals. And then those mammals turned into our, these, the, our hominins. And then they evolved, we are also hominins, into different, our, our predecessors species, and they evolved into us. But your direct ancestor is this single cell organism at the bottom of the ocean. And people just, it's hard to internalize that. Now, of course, we're talking about Darwin and Darwinian evolution. And a lot of people think, oh, well, the humans evolved this way and these people evolved that way. He's saying all the living organisms evolved just as you described it. Yeah, we evolved. So all life on earth has the same common origin as, as most people know. And we've all evolved not from worse to better, but we've evolved because our conditions have changed. And those of us um, who were optimized to succeed in whatever the new environment was, they had that advantage and they survived and procreated. And the ones who didn't have those capabilities didn't. And because it changes, something that seems good in one context may not be so good in another context. We maybe come back to that later because that, that touches on this issue of diversity where we think about diversity as always, isn't it nice to go to a college where there's all kinds of people, but really diversity is our sole survival strategy as a species. Well, my ancestors had something to do with the Irish potato famine where Mm. all the potatoes ended up being the same and they couldn't stop a fungus going through. Let us talk about diversity and what that does for evolution. 
And uh, what happens if you don't have diversity? Well, you have to, if you have diversity, when you face a new environment or a new challenge, then at least within your type of organism, some of you will survive. And that's why when we have our antibiotics, they aren't entirely successful because you can mostly kill a bacterial population, a target bacterial population, but there'll be a few outliers who survive. And then those are the ones who will grow and then they will spread their genetics. The same is true for our ancestors. But if we don't have that diversity or if we make a series of decisions that limit our genetic diversity, that means that if we face some new challenge, we may not be able to survive that challenge. And that's a big threat. Well, I'm glad you mentioned bacteria because bacteria have what we call lateral gene transfer. So if one develops a resistance, they can shoot that, that DNA right over, yeah. you know, they can have here, here it is. You can resist yeah. as well. And we think that humans don't have that. A lot of people think that humans don't have it because it's this, this great skill that bacteria have is that you are bacteria, most of them reproduce clonally. And so you have your genetics and for you and, and all of your, your uh, descendants and your offspring. Um, and so with lateral gene transfer, what you can do is you see another bacteria that has some genetic trait that you want. You kind of stick it. Really, it's like a little arm. And it was only last year that they were able to get a, a photograph uh, of this arm grabbing this, this DNA from another bacteria. And people think about, well, how do, how do humans gain genetic traits? And we get it through our parents and grandparents and, and great-grandparents, and we give them to our children. But then within the human cell, we have the nuclear DNA and we have the mitochondrial DNA. And that mitochondrial DNA is actually the DNA from bacteria that symbiotically morphed into the cells of our great, 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 great ancestors. And so we today aren't doing as much lateral gene transfer as we've done in the past, but that lateral gene transfer is actually baked into our genetics. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Jamie Metzel. Dr. Metzel is a technology futurist and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and has served on the U.S. National Security Council, the State Department, and Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He has a Ph.D. in Southeast Asian history from Oxford and a law degree from Harvard. Over his career, he's written a number of books, both fiction and nonfiction. He's here today with Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering, and the Future of Humanity. Well, I didn't mention any science credentials there, Jamie. I have to say, uh, with all the doctors in your family, it seems like a lot of doctors in your family, you have to get the science right, or they'll come you know, after you, I, right? Yeah. Well, certainly everybody in my, in my immediate family, I'm one of four brothers and two parents, everybody is a doctor of something, either an MD, a PhD, or both. And so certainly I come from that kind of background. Uh, but then more than 20 years ago, I was working on the National Security Council. My then boss, Richard Clark, was the person who had predicted essentially 9-11 years before. And he always used to say that if everybody in Washington was focusing on one thing, you could be sure there was something far more important that was being missed. And so 20 years ago, I became obsessed with genetics and the biotechnology revolutions as something that was going to, as things that were going to fundamentally transform our world. And nobody was, or not many people were thinking about it or talking about it. So I decided I was going to get to the bottom of things. And starting 20 years ago, I started 
reading everything I could. I started finding people to talk to, finding people to, to teach me. Then I started writing articles. Uh, then I was started to be invited to um, testify before Congress on on some of these issues. So it's, it's got more and more involved. And so I'm entirely self-taught, which is why I love speaking at big technology and medical conferences, which I do all the time. And telling them, please, if I'm saying something that's wrong or doesn't make sense, tell me. But you know, unfortunately, my track record is pretty good. I feel like I've, <laughs> I've got things down. It's just, don't ask me 10 level deep questions about the same topic. I can, I can go eight questions. But well, 10 is you hard. already have a PhD. You already went to law school. Who would make you get another degree? I mean, that would just be cruel, Jamie. You know, it's, it's fun to do, actually. I didn't realize when I was going through my education, just how completely awesome being in a university is. And I, I did my PhD in two years. I was on such a uh, such a fast train, and now I think back, God, you know, it was so wonderful being there. I should have like done what so many other people did, which is like hang out as relax. long as I could. <laughs> yeah, relax a little. Yeah, you know, you, you have so many different perspectives in terms of how the world works and what the world is comprised of, if you will. I know that you worked with the United Nations in Cambodia. Let's talk about that experience. Sure. Well, that was a really incredible experience. So when I, I'll, I'll start a little earlier. When I was a freshman at Brown, I met a classmate of mine, Arntorn Pond, who was a survivor of the Cambodian genocide. And hearing his story about how his whole family had, had been killed by the Khmer Rouge, I was so moved because of what had happened to him, but also because of the similarities between the Cambodian genocide and the Holocaust. And my, my father came to the United States after the war as a, as a refugee. And I felt really a responsibility. Well, if this has happened during my lifetime, what's my responsibility to respond? So I, originally when I was 18, I went and worked in a refugee camp on the Thai Cambodian border. And then in the middle, after my first year of doing my PhD at Oxford, the, the peace treaty was signed, ending the Cambodian Civil War. And so um, I had already, I was just in Cambodia to do research uh, when the treaty was signed. And there was this big UN peacekeeping mission. I was one of the early people hired, and I worked as a human rights officer, traveling around the country, investigating the most horrific human rights violations, trying to figure out what the United Nations should do in, in response and try to, try to help inculcate a culture of respect for, for human rights. But it really kind of taught me a lot that the, the ultimate questions that we are asking ourselves are what does it mean to be a human being? And what is and what are the values that we bring uh, to bear? And that applies to everything we do, whether it's civil wars or advanced technology. If we have the right values, we'll have a much better chance of a good outcome. But if we don't have great values, if we're not really asking ourselves the tough questions, uh, we can really lead ourselves into a dangerous place. Now let's get back to hacking Darwin. Got news. We know that we can decode our DNA. We're just learning we can write it. What do you mean we can hack it? Well, it's just the, so, as you say, so the Human Genome Project showed that we can read DNA. We didn't really know what it was saying, but we, we translated it into, uh, into code. Now there's incredible progress in understanding what the DNA is saying, how to read it. And that's very difficult because if you sequenced every human on earth, you would still know nothing. What you need to do is to compare the genetic information, the genotype, to how that those genes are expressed, which is the phenotype. And that means you need access to people's 
electronic health records, their life records. And it's, the, and it's that comparison that allows us to, to gain those insights. So that's reading and there's a long way to go. And then there's writing which is gene editing. And it's, we're still, we are still at a very early stage. Um, first there was zinc finger and then talons, and now there is CRISPR uh, and there will be the next thing more and tools, the next thing, more tools. more tools and the tools CRISPR as exciting as CRISPR is now CRISPR will seem like the barbaric tool in a very short number of years. This, Oh my God, you did a double stranded cut of DNA. That's crazy. Why would you be so, uh, so aggressive? So we're moving into the ability to edit but hack is really, it's changing the story. And so we're just at the very early stages, just very recently, there was uh, in vivo, in the womb, um, gene editing of mouse embryos with a very positive outcome of eliminating a, a congenital uh, liver disease. But there are people now, the whole synthetic biology community, who are talking about doing things like, I mean, like Craig Venter has done, uh, building a very simple um, single-cell organisms gene from scratch. But then there are people who are talking about building human DNA from scratch. That doesn't, doesn't necessarily mil, mean build a human. So we are going Your to, nose, my hair. Yeah, so we're exactly. talking about, no, no, you're both your nose and your hair are perfect. <laughs> I, I, um, but and so really what we're going to be able to do is just hack all of life, fundamentally transform it, change the rules. And it's a huge responsibility. And that future is coming a lot sooner than most people appreciate. When this book finally comes out, there's a lot more to it than we're yes. able to cover now. But I want to ask you, who who did you really write this book for? Because I sense there are a number of audiences. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. It's really important to me because my last two books have been science fiction novels. First, there was Gen uh, Genesis Code and then Eternal Sonata about genetic engineering and life extension. And what I found when I was going around on my book tours is that when I explained the underlying science, the way a novelist would explain science, not the way a scientist or most scientists would explain scientists, all of a sudden I just saw people's eyes widening. They were just, they got it. Even though they'd heard about these things, they'd heard about Chris they'd heard about IVF. Uh, they, maybe they heard about embryo, embryo selection. When I told them the unified story of where we're going as a species, all of a sudden, whether it was senior scientists at major tech conferences or seventh and eighth graders at the Hebrew Academy in Bergen County, New Jersey, when they had enough information, they understood what was at stake. And I realized that there was a gap between these very well-educated, frankly, very well-intentioned scientists and everybody else. Well, Jamie, such a pleasure. Uh, I know you'll come back and, and see me again, right? I, I look forward to it. I can't wait. My guest today is Jamie Metzel. The book is Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. It will be published by Source Books in April 2019 and can be pre-ordered now at bookstores and online wherever books are sold. For Tech Nation... I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. 
Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.